Tonight's talk is called Lessons from Nature. As we sit and practice here at the Forest Refuge, we find ourselves surrounded by the immense beauty of nature. It can happen that if we don't have a wise relationship with this beautiful world around us, that we find ourselves quite distracted. We find ourselves continually looking at the beauty of nature, tantalized by nature, enchanted by it, in awe of it, and lost in it. And yet nature in itself can be both a great support to our practice and holds within it many teachings. There's many ways that we can learn from the world of nature. So tonight I'd like to explore a little bit about the different ways that this natural world can help us, support us, and also something of some of the lessons that we can learn from nature. For myself, I've always considered nature to be my first teacher. When I was young, it was uh, in times of distress to nature that I turned, where I felt at home, where I felt at peace. For me, one of my uh, strongest experiences of nature as a teacher when I was young was to go to the mountains. I lived not far from the mountains. And, you know, it was through the mountains that I really learned something or tasted something of equanimity. You know, to be uh, in the presence of a mountain, to feel the power of it and to see how it's affected by so many changing conditions. And it seems to have this unshakable quality about it. The lessons that we receive from nature come in different forms. It can teach us how to be with ourselves, how to face our own minds. It also teaches us about the way things are, the lawfulness of life. It can be a place where we see what seems like outside of ourselves, or see it in the external world, and we touch into the truth of change. We touch into the facts of life, how all life is born and will die. And we really begin to see of the interdependence, the changing conditions that create these appearances. In the Thai language, the word for nature uh, gets translated as entering into the Dhamma. And, you know, it really comes from nature 
holding within it the lawfulness of life. And the Buddha was always pointing to the lawfulness of life, the truth of life, the truth of the way things are. And this can become visibly evident as we look, feel, touch, breathe, connect with the world around us. As human beings, we have the capacity to know and understand this world of nature. Understanding it just in an intellectual way is not going to lead towards the freeing of our hearts and minds. But when we pay attention to nature and apply the same laws that we see in the world around us to the workings of our hearts and minds, it can help to free us. In these moments, we make a bridge between the external appearances in the world and that deep intuitive understanding that we can touch into as human beings. It can be in a simple moment where we might see a leaf fluttering to the ground. And in that moment, we might be struck by the truth of impermanence. If we can attune ourselves to the world of nature and make this transition into a deep understanding within our own minds, it helps us to feel at peace, at ease in the world. It helps us to feel a part of all life. There was a great Thai forest monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa. He was a monk who emphasized the natural world in his teachings. I had a friend who went to practice with him and went and asked for instruction. And Ajahn Buddhadasa simply said, let the forest teach you. Ajahn Buddhadasa was once asked how Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred could best approach practice. And he replied with two suggestions. He said, first, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of loving kindness. And then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. And they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place in the midst of all things.
I think this is a really important teaching because it helps us put our practice in the proper perspective. In the perspective of that we are learning to be at peace, at home, within ourselves, within the world that we live in, in a wise way. And that our practice is not simply about learning to be a good meditator, not about just learning about meditative states that we only experience on the cushion, but it's to lead us to a deep understanding of life that can transform the way that we experience ourselves in the world, that we aren't caught in separation, alienation, that we live as a human being, fully alive and connected at peace. In speaking about nature tonight, I don't want to in any way trigger a romantic, sentimental version of being with nature, because that isn't going to be what's going to help us. That's not what's going to help us have this transformative relationship with nature. We actually find that this um, romantic, sentimental view of nature really only is possible when we sit inside a building that has double glazed windows, thickly insulated walls, and has central heating. Because when we actually step out into the world of nature, it isn't so beautiful. It isn't so romantic. Often the lessons from nature are very harsh. we step outside, and if we're practicing outside now, we will likely find that we get very cold, that, you know, at times there's a bitter wind blowing, and it's not so easy to be at peace, at ease, that uh, we get disturbed by this. We get confronted. Through any of the seasons here, we can run into challenges. You know, in the summer it gets very hot. The bugs come out. It can be very irritating. We might run into poison ivy. And yet still, this natural world can have a deep resonance for many of us where we can find ourselves feeling supported, feeling supported in being present, awake, alert. The Buddha experienced this support. He was somebody whom a lot of his life took place in the natural world. He was actually born under a sal tree. 
for many years, he practiced diligently out in the forest. And then he became enlightened under a tree. After that, he continued to practice a lot of the time in the natural world. He once said, I resorted to the forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. And it is because I see two benefits that I still resort to the forest. I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. There are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. It's said that in the commentaries, um, what the Buddha meant when he said, I have compassion for future generations, was that later generations, in seeing that the Buddha had resorted to forest dwellings, would follow his example and thus hasten their progress towards making an end of suffering. The Buddha often encouraged people to go out and practice in the forest because it is a support to our practice. It's kind of interesting that, you know, many generations later, as we practice, we so often think of having to do it within the confines of a building. A couple of years ago, I was sitting here in March and April. And during that time, I found myself sitting outside a lot. And no, for a lot of that time, I didn't see anybody else when I was out there. And at one point, I started to think, ooh, am I a bad yogi? You know, everyone else is in here practicing. Maybe I should be in here too. And actually, I was practicing with uh, uh, my fellow teachers at that time. And so I just imagined that everyone thought I was a terrible yogi, probably a terrible teacher. <laughs> and then there came a period where there was... Um, a lot of landscaping happening. And at that time, a note appeared on the board, which actually encouraged people to go outside and practice. And it said, it had the quote, there are these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate, do not be negligent, lest you later regret it. And suddenly when I read that note, it was like, oh, I come from a lineage of people who have gone to the forest, have turned to nature as a place of practice. So there's been a great lineage of people who have turned to the forest. You know, in the Thai forest tradition, it's Thai forest tradition. You know, many, many people practicing in the jungles, in the wild wilderness. In Tibet, there's many people who have spent years and years practicing in the caves. There's a, you know, a contemporary, Tenzin Palmo, a English woman who ordained in the Tibetan tradition. And she has spent, you know, I think, at least 12 years practicing in a cave um, in the mountains at an altitude of over 13,000 feet. 
know, during that time, she faced many, many challenges, both physically and mentally. And this is something that practicing in the uh, natural world does, that we're really forced to you know, develop inner skills and challenged through just basic survival. She actually, in her experience, um, in her book, Cave in the Snow, described how one time she got snowed in in her cave. And when this happened, it broke her stovepipe. So she found that she could no longer heat her food, and she didn't have heat to warm her cave. Um, it was becoming very cold. And so at that time, you know, she has great training. She, being a good Buddhist, decided that she would just contemplate death. She felt quite at ease and at peace with that, if that was to be her fate. But as she was doing this, suddenly she heard a voice that said, Dig! And so she did. And she dug her way out. She actually had to dig her way out a couple of times. During this time, having to face many, many challenges. When we go out into nature to practice, it provides us with solitude. In this solitude, we find that we can simplify our lives, simplify the baggage that we carry around as to who we are, the stories of our lives. You know, I found sitting out in nature, the squirrels don't seem to care so much about who I think I am, what's happening in my practice. Sigurd Olson, a 20th century conservationist, says, Simplicity in all things is the secret of the wilderness and one of its most valuable lessons. It is what we leave behind that is important. I think the matter of simplicity goes further than just food, equipment, and unnecessary gadgets. It goes into the matter of thoughts and objectives as well. When in the wilds, we must not carry our problems with us, or the joy is lost. We can experience this just going for a walk in the woods. If we're just walking, we can be so awake, alert. You know, the senses are dancing. It doesn't mean we're lost in that. But there's a sheer delight in simply being present. But when we carry the burden of who we are, we don't see, we don't experience. We aren't with the world around us. And I've used that you know, as a simple practice, walking in the woods, just the practice of being, seeing, all of the sense doors open, and then, boom, a thought drops in. And if we identify with that thought, the world around us disappears. And then, as we recognize it, just the letting go and the connecting again. Even if we don't go 
to a cave or to the jungle to meditate. Just short periods out in nature help us to have solitude. In some ways, practicing inside this building with all of its windows, even if we're not going right out into nature, this too can provide a solitude where we really learn to be at home with ourselves, at home with our minds, not needing to rely on others to have a sense of well-being. Walking out in nature, we can find that nature can provoke presence. Walking and standing in a grove of old trees, it's like standing in the presence of elders. You know, just on the loops that are out in uh, the back of the forest refuge, there are several groves of older trees. And I know many times in walking those loops, without even thinking about it, as I would step into these groves, I would just suddenly find myself stopping, standing, and feeling the presence that is there. We can also find out in nature that we have moments of deep tranquility. It might be a moment where we are awed by the beauty. And in that beauty, in the scene of that beauty, there comes a stillness. You know, it could be a moment of standing under a magnificent waterfall. You know, when there's just a, a deafening roar from the waterfall, and we look up and we see this water plunging several hundred feet we become enveloped by the mist. And there's just an internal silence, stillness. It might happen standing alone on the mountaintop and looking out across the valley at other mountain peaks as the sun is setting and they become lit up, pink, purple, yellow, turning around and seeing the full moon rising. A moment where there's no leaning into the future, no hanging on to the past, and no craving for anything else to be. Just standing for a moment as a part of all life. We find that the usual buzzing of thoughts is stilled, quieted. If we look at these moments, we see that there is no craving, no clinging, no wanting of anything else. We're not judging, evaluating, or comparing. 
there's an openness of heart that is receptive, available to experiencing things just as they are. This begins to inform us how to relax, how to let be, what it feels like to have a moment of non-clinging, to feel that ease and grace of the mind that is not clinging. We learn to touch into deep receptivity. This is from Han Shan Teqing, a 15th century Chinese monk. Resting at my open window, I gaze out at mountains. A thousand peaks of blue and purple rise above the pines without a thought or care. White clouds come and go, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed. So in these moments, where we taste of deep receptivity, we taste of non-clinging, we're seeing, experiencing for a moment, a taste of the end of suffering. If we grasp in these moments, if we try to hang on to these experiences, they become excruciating, painful. And this is where nature becomes a really strong mirror. We can you know, be in the most beautiful place and simply be caught in wanting, craving, wanting to hang on to it. But if we just let go, let be, we can be in complete peace. So nature really has the capacity or just being in it helps us to touch into a natural presence. I remember a very strong experience I had one time when I was out in the desert. And if you've been out in the desert at night and you look up at this, you know, this amazingly vast, huge open space that's above you, all of these stars. And then there is a silence in the desert that is so profound. And it, it's almost like it has a roar to it. But you can only enter into that silence when there's presence, when there is a unification of mind that just is firmly planted in the moment. We find that we have to step out of the way to connect with nature in this way. And it can be really interesting if you're practicing around here to you know, be out in nature where maybe you do feel more at ease at home. And this isn't true for everybody. For some people it brings up terror. 
Uh, but you know, if you're feeling that natural resonance, to watch what happens as you walk into the building, as you sit on the cushion, do you suddenly become a meditator? Do you put on armor? And just to know that it really is no different. In practicing out in nature or being in nature, we will find that we get a heightened awareness. Now, many of us know this from uh, our practice that we do on retreat. When we become mindful, all of the uh, experiences, all of the sense doors can become really heightened, and we might smell as if we've never smelt before, or hear sounds that just ring in a whole, uh, in a very pristine way. And this can also happen out in nature. And it can happen not just because we might be in some beautiful environment, but because when we are out in nature, we rely on our senses as a means of survival. In nature, there can be a lot of danger, threats to life itself. But this can be used to help us, to assist us. Ajahn Man, another famous Thai forest monk, had, he himself has done a lot of practice in the wilderness, or had done, he's no longer alive. Um, he had, in his earlier life, been seeking a teacher and had been unable to find a teacher that he thought could really help him. And so he decided to do, like the Buddha had done, to turn to the wilderness and to let uh, the wilderness be his teacher. So he practiced in the jungle. And the jungle has many dangers in it. There was many wild elephants, tigers, Um, leopards, black panthers, wild buffalo, boars, snakes. But he said he wanted to go to the wilderness, not to conform to the ways of nature, as that is just a continuation of samsara, but to break through to the truths that would transcend them entirely. He also recognized uh, that In being in the wilderness, there were survival skills that one acquired that were also needed in the inner world to be able to face our own demons. He said once that until someone is faced with a tiger, they will not really know how much fear there is. And I'd like to read an excerpt from a story of one of Ajahn Man's disciples. The disciple was named Tet, and he was about 34 years old, and he himself had been wandering in the wilds for many years. And he had heard many tigers growl during that time. But on this occasion, he was in a hut outside of a village when he became stricken with fear. And he says, I sat down to meditate, 
but my mind wouldn't focus. At the time, I did not know that the mind was terrified of the tiger. My body sweated so much that the perspiration streamed down. Why all of the sweating when it was so cold? I spread the robe and kept covered, but the body was trembling. The mind was too exhausted to meditate. And when I was about to recline, the tiger roared again, and I was shaking as if I had jungle fever. Only then did I realize that the mind refused to focus out of sheer fright. Immediately I sat up and I conjoled my mind to have courage to face death if it came. And then in that moment the mind became calm. At times when hearing the tiger again, my mind simply ignored its roar. Like the mind making contact with an object, it is just noise. Ajahn Mun said, to the untrained mind, the roar of the tiger will be overwhelming. To the person who has the desire to be free of suffering, they will use it as an opportunity to turn to the Dharma or turn to greater truth. He said, there comes a critical point when strong concentration develops in order to face our fears and then further insight will arise. He believed that it was good fortune for a monk to hear the growl of a tiger. For the ordinary mind, the response would be fear. For the noble one, it is simply sound. I'm not quite sure I could test myself to sit and hear the roar of a tiger as simply sound. But I do understand something of of using nature in that way. I know, you know, in my earlier life I spent a lot of times putting my life on the line in order to have a sense of being awake. Um, you know, I, I, was, I did a lot of outdoor activities. And one of the activities that I loved to do was to climb, to climb mountains. And I also had a really strong fear of heights. So it demanded of me, as I climbed, to be really attentive, present, to pay attention to only what I needed to pay attention to. And I found that if I did that, if the mind stayed focused, I could climb. I wasn't overwhelmed by fear. And yet one day, as I was climbing, and in a very precarious position, I forgot that for a moment. And I looked down. As I looked down, I became paralyzed by fear. I was stuck. I couldn't move. It was agony. It, it was sheer terror. And, the, and then there was the seeing that the only way to work with the situation was to focus the mind and move on. In nature, we become confronted by habits of mind that we get caught in. You know, for some of us, it may be fear. For others of us, it may be arrogance. 
arrogance is uh, something that if we carry out into the natural world, we may be learning really hard lessons. Mount Everest is quite famous for the teaching of these lessons. Know that for those who climb the mountain and don't have the wisdom to yield to the conditions, stand a very good chance of losing their lives. When you climb a mountain, you know, it can be a beautiful day. You set out, conditions look fantastic, you, maybe you're all excited, you start going up the mountain, and then mountains are famous for having storms move in really unexpectedly. You, and sometimes you just can't see them coming, or you don't get much warning. If you're filled with arrogance, you just push on. You try and conquer the mountain anyways. It can have a great cost. But if you're wise, you yield. And this is actually something, a lesson that's really helpful just in sitting on the cushion. That we have to be responsive to conditions. So if one day we wake up and we're really sick and we expect our practice just to be the same as it was, we will be disappointed, we will struggle, we'll be fraught with difficulties. But if we learn how to yield, to be receptive, to move with, we will find the strength to simply meet the moment. So nature can bring us face to face with our minds. And we learn the necessity to train our minds so that each time difficulty arises, we aren't overwhelmed, lost in these difficulties. We learn to face our fear so that we can find true refuge. In nature, we will often find ourselves face-to-face with the first noble truth, the truth of suffering. We will see clearly in nature how all beings are subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death. Nature doesn't mask this truth. And I remember as a child how I found comfort in that. How when I looked around at the people in my life and heard what people were saying, everyone was making it out to be a nice world. Everyone was trying to have this eternal uh, good cheer about them. And glossing over anything that challenged this. And there was a sense of there being no depth to it, it being very superficial. And I remember going out into nature and being struck at times by the harshness of it, the brutality, to, you know, come across an animal that had died, or to see a bird with a broken wing, and to know that because of that, it would meet its end.
And when we see it in nature, we can know that when it happens to us, it's not personal. It's not personal that the body ages, that it starts to decay in different ways. It doesn't mean that we aren't a good person. It's the law of life. It doesn't mean that when someone dies, when we die, that it's a punishment. It's simply one of the laws of impermanence. And sitting in nature, we can become confronted by this truth. It can have have moments where it just jumps out at us. I was practicing one time in Burma, and I was sitting out on a little platform in the back of the monastery that I was practicing at. And there was, you know, not many people around. It had somewhat of that jungle feeling. Sitting there, many times I was startled by nature, uh, kind of rattled by it at times. And one time I, I had this... It seemed to happen many times that whenever I would abruptly open my eyes, there was some creature there. And so on this one day, sitting with my eyes closed, quiet, and then without knowing that I'd heard any sound, anything, I just opened my eyes and there was a snake in front of me. And the snake was dancing back and forth. You know, it was just doing this beautiful dance. And it wasn't just a moment of seeing, there was a moment of sheer panic, (laughs) thinking it was about to strike. But then... in continuing to look, I saw that the snake actually had its sight set on a frog. And, you know, it was a frog off in the distance and the snake just going back and forth, back and forth. And then in a split second, it struck. And the frog was gone. The truth of impermanence. And when we're really quiet, sitting in these places. It's like a Zen stick coming in. There it is. We see it. We know it. And it applies to us. It's not personal. We taste of these changes just through the weather, the changing conditions. Just today, watching the play of, of clouds and sun and snow, uh, it's always changing. Nature has no concept of perfection, something that we can often struggle with that when we're out there, if we look around, there's, you know, there's not too many trees that would be the perfect tree. You know, they can't, the old ones are gnarly and, uh, you know, might have broken branches. Um, and so, you know, if perfection is something that we struggle with, just looking around in nature to see that it's all different, 
there is no such thing as this perfection. It's all perfect in its imperfection. We find the changes in nature occurring in sometimes a radical way and sometimes very gradual. This came home to me one time when I was, again, in the desert. Um, The desert being a very ancient land. Traveling through the desert, through national parks, uh, there was many signs. And I started to notice that time seemed to be related to in millions of years. So it was like really a sense of time in a whole different dimension. And, you know, in just looking at the desert and realizing that, you know, what I was looking at was once uh, the bottom of an ocean and then had been thrust up to be a mountain and then was once again being eroded down. You know, and so at times there's this radical energy of change. And then at times it's so gradual. Bryce Canyon, I don't know if you've ever been there, but in Bryce Canyon it's like you can watch the, the desert disintegrating almost particle by particle. That, you know, if you, if any footprint shifts the surface. When the wind blows, you just see particles of dust flying off. Or the rain comes and it pounds it down. You just watch this change happening. I thought this was a really good metaphor for how we experience our practice at times. That, you know, at times there'll be really radical change, gross change happening in a way, dynamic change happening. And at other times, we might just be slowly witnessing habits of mind being eroded away. And just to know that within our practice, these cycles of change can be felt in a similar way to which we witness them in the natural world. We also, in the natural world, face the uncontrollability of nature. You know, to stand in front of a wild ocean, we know we can't tame it. I lived for a while in Australia, and there was at times uh, places where they had built these sandbars, or these bars going out into the ocean, trying to shift the ways of nature. And yet, uh, would find that those those bars themselves would get slowly eroded away. You know, it's such a huge force, and we really taste of how uncontrollable it is. We can also see out in nature how it is uh, subject to the laws of cause and effect. Again, I saw this so clearly being in the desert. You would find, you know, in looking around, that there would be little pockets of life in, you know, what could be a very stark, uh, uninhabited 
environment. And these pockets of life would be in pockets where the light, the sun, the, the moisture, and the, the, the breakdown, the erosion that happened came together in a way that could support maybe a very small, fragile flower coming out of a crack in a solid wall. Quite amazing to see that it's just conditions coming together. And these are the same conditions that come together in the appearance of this mind and body. Through this, we touch into the interconnectedness of life. We see this in all of the microsystems, how all of these systems have little communities within them, all dependent upon each other, looking at a web of life. Sometimes our webs of life get challenged. I heard a story just the other day that was a very touching story that comes out of the recent tsunami that happened. There was a baby hippopotamus that was that lost its mother and it survived the tsunami. It was about a year old, and hippopotamus usually live with their mother for approximately four years. So this hippopotamus sought out a surrogate mother, and it adopted as its mother a male tortoise that was about a century old. And uh, this hippopotamus and tortoise eat together, they swim together, and they sleep together. Uh, The hippopotamus follows the tortoise around in the same way that it would follow its mother. If somebody approaches the tortoise, the elder, the hippopotamus gets very aggressive and defensive, protective of the tortoise. And Uh, This article that I read said that the tortoise seems to be very happy with being a mother. We find stories in nature where there is an awareness of the animals in unusual ways of this interconnectedness, of looking out for each other, helping each other. There was another story from the tsunami where um, on an island off of Thailand, there were some working elephants. And it was said that half an hour before the tsunami struck, they lifted up their trunks and started trumpeting, calling out a warning to others of approaching danger. And it was also said that these elephants with their trunks picked up people and placed them on their backs in order to take them to higher ground. We live in a web of life 
all forms of life, all dependent on each other. You know, it's very much like looking at a spider in the midst of a web. If we move one part of that web, all of life is affected. And as human beings, we have the capacity to deeply realize this within our own experience so that it's not just an intellectual concept, not just a nice way of framing life. But we can come to see it in our own being, in our own body and mind. Nature can help to open us up to the vastness, the boundlessness of mind. I remember as a small child spending many nights out under the stars, looking up, and just getting this sense of being like a speck of dust. It didn't bring up fear in me. It didn't feel like, bring up feelings of futility, but helped me to have a healthier reference point. Helped me to, you know, in those moments where one can be caught in one's own suffering, can be caught in self-pity, to recognize that it's one point you know, almost like one star. We aren't even that. We're, we're much smaller than that. In the midst of this vastness, there was a song that came out, in, I think in my late teens, and a line in it was, All you are is dust in the wind. You know, this can help us to step out of feeling like we're the center of the universe, and instead feeling just a point, a star shining in this bright vastness that's so limitless. And within this, there's a preciousness that, you know, it doesn't diminish what we are. It can bring a preciousness to it. I'd like to share something from Stephen Mitchell's book, parables and portraits, and it's called The Sense of Proportion. There are at least 100 billion galaxies in the universe. Each galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. Each star illuminates an uncounted number of planets, each of which may support inconceivable forms of life. From most points of view, the green earth is smaller than an electron. All this is happening within your own mind. All this is happening within our own minds. This vastness, limitlessness. Opening ourselves up to all 
that is possible. So nature can be a great teacher for us. It has many lessons for us. From the stillness and solitude that it provides to the facing of our deepest fears, learning how to tame the mind, a place where we can allow ourselves to be touched by the truth of suffering, to be touched by impermanence, and to stop fighting the truth of suffering, the truth of impermanence. It allows us in the seeing, the knowing of this truth of impermanence, to not struggle, to not fight, to not try to make different what this body-mind is. Through the exploration of the natural world, we learn to see how the laws that we see externally apply to us internally. And this helps us to find a deep peace and ease. William Blake once said, If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would be seen as it is, infinite. Opening up to the deepest truth within us. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the true nature of their mind and find their proper place amidst all things.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.